Hi, and welcome to Office Hours, the podcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary. I'm Scott Clark. Today on Office Hours, we have a special guest. We're talking to uh, Dr. Martin Clauber, an independent scholar and uh, editor of Historians of the Christian Tradition and author of Between Pan-Protestantism and Reformed Scholasticism. Marty is one of the few scholars who has paid attention to what happened to Reformed Orthodoxy after uh, what is called the High Orthodox Period, or after someone like Francis Turt. So we'll be talking about that today and about the, the lecture that he gave here on campus uh, about the uh, decline of Reformed theology in the 18th and 19th centuries. Hi, Marty, and welcome to Office Hours. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here. Well, we are glad you are on campus uh, to give a convocation lecture and then also to uh, to lecture to our uh, seminar in uh, Reformed Orthodoxy. How did you get interested in in Reformed Orthodoxy? And then we'll come back and talk about what that is. But how did you come to it? Well, when I was in seminary, I went to Trinity Div School in Chicago. Um, I learned about it through my church history classes, through John Woodbridge. And uh, he did his research on the uh, development of biblical criticism. And uh, I was very interested in what he was talking about. Um, he makes great use of what's called the Vincentian Canon. Um, contemporary of Augustine, an uh, early church father named Vincent of Lorraine, argued that true doctrine is what is believed everywhere at all times and in all places. And so that's an argument for continuity in theology. I, and what I found is that there's elements of continuity, but there are also always elements of discontinuity and that theology does develop over time. And that got me interested. Was there something about Reformed Orthodoxy in particular that attracted you to it? I mean, after all, if if you're working with a Vincentian canon, I mean, you could arguably look at any period of church history. And the reason I ask is that uh, some person listening to this broadcast may say to himself or herself, well, what is Reformed Orthodoxy and why would anybody even study it? Well, part of it has to do with our doctrine of Scripture. And when I was in school, um, there was a big debate over uh, the nature of biblical inerrancy. Is the Bible true in all that it affirms, or does it contain errors in matters of uh, history and science? And so what the argument was that there was continuity throughout the history of the Church on uh, divine inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, but that during the post-Reformation period among the scholastics, quote-unquote, uh, some people would argue that they actually invented it, that yeah. it never existed before. And I think that's a very uh, important concept because it relates to the authority of the Bible, which is uh, very foundational, obviously, for what we believe. And so I want to look into that period and see what really happened during that time. What do people mean when they say Reformed Orthodoxy or Reformed Scholasticism? Well, after the Reformation, think about it how it started. In Geneva, when Calvin uh, was the senior pastor, head of the company of pastors, the city council actually voted for the Reformation. And then Calvin came in, and yes, the he had control of the churches, but the people didn't know what to believe. Yeah. So they had to educate the children, they had to educate the adults, and then in the next generation, they had to train pastors to take their place. So they founded a school. And teaching theology in a school 
is much different than preaching theology from the pulpit. Hmm. And so the second generation of the Reformers, after Calvin, Theodore Beza, and people like him, had to organize a class. And when you first teach a class, you go to your school notes. And all these guys were taught um, in a medieval scholastic method. And so they used the methodology that they had learned, uh, but there was a difference in terms of the doctrinal content. Why is it, do you think, that Reformed Orthodoxy, Reformed Scholasticism, and Protestant Scholasticism in general has such a bad reputation? Because you, you mentioned you started off looking into it because some were arguing in the 70s that the Reformed Orthodox invented the doctrine of inerrancy, and so you wanted to find out if that were true. Why are they always used as bad guys? Well, if you think about the contrast between scholasticism and the opposite would be pietism. Mm. Pietism is much more appealing to the modern sensibility. Why is that? Can you explain? Well, the the pietists were people who had Bible studies in their homes. They uh, were very into practicing their faith, very strongly into worship. For example, uh, when Wesley came to Georgia as a missionary, uh, he almost died in a shipwreck. Mm. And here they had these pietist uh, believers from Moravia who were praying and having a devotional time when Wesley was thinking, I'm going to be dead very, very soon. And he was very impressed with that. And so I I think they're more appealing. And if you read the writings, it's a tougher read to read the scholastics than to read uh, a, a, a treatise on Christian devotion. And so today, most Christians feel more comfortable reading a devotional literature but uh, it's more difficult for them to get through theological literature. Is it the case that the Reformed Orthodox were, as some people have described them, cold, uh, sterile, even uh, soul-killing or deadening? Have you found that? Well, you have to make a distinction between their formal publications, Mm -hmm. what they write, and then you look at their letters that they write. And there's a strong emphasis in the letters on personal piety. Hmm. So these guys were uh, very strong believers, uh, very devotional in their personal lives, uh, but they were professors of theology. So that's hmm. what they did. Yeah. And then they, when they published, they published professional works. And many of them were pastors as well, right? I mean, many of them were in pulpits and preaching, and in some cases taking care, depending on where and when we are looking, but taking care of congregations and visiting the sick and doing, you know, ordinary Christian ministry as well. What's interesting, there's a French theologian in the 17th century, a guy named Pierre Dumoulin, mm-hmm. M-O-U-L-I-N, and he was a pastor, and he was a theology professor. And he's deemed as the high point of Reformed Orthodoxy. But if you look at his letters, there's a whole different side of him. Mm. I looked at one letter he wrote to his two sons, who were both in the ministry, and he made a distinction between his professional work and then his pastoral work. And he said the pastoral work is much more important. The care of people's souls, uh, leading them in the right path, and that the the work he did professionally, that was his responsibility because he was the leader of the church. And he was training pastors for And he was training pastors. So, future ministry. I mean, to say that they didn't have a personal relationship with Christ, uh, I just don't see it. The reason I, I press you a little bit on this is, is because 
if we live in a largely pietist age, then we're sort of under an obligation to at least illustrate to people that those old Reformed writers who, as you say, in their professional works, wrote technically and sometimes difficult works really were warm-hearted, pious people. So we're, in a sense, they're under, I think, something of an unfair obligation. We have to first demonstrate that they love Jesus before people will take their, their work seriously. Uh, who, who are some of the more significant figures in, um, in Reformed Orthodoxy in the 16th and, and 17th centuries? Well, before I get to that, I just want to talk about sure. the distinction between theory and practice. Yeah. And that's always been an, a tug of war in the church. Which is more important, your theology or your devotional life? Yeah. Now, I would say today, uh, we've moved way toward the side of practice. Yeah. And so in a lot of churches, you don't get a lot of theology. What you get is how to be a better dad, how to be a better mom, how Jesus will help you do better work. Or you're getting a theology, but it's not a very good theology. I no. mean, you're, you're getting a theology that implies things about God and man that for most of Christian history, most Christians wouldn't have wanted to say. Well, if there's no doctrine, what makes us distinctively Christian? Yeah. If there's no content to it. And uh, I mean, after all, the resurrection is a doctrine. It's a fact but the resurrection isn't just something that you experience in your heart, right? If the resurrection didn't actually happen in time, in space, in history, and if that message isn't announced, right, and the announcement of it is a doctrine, it's a teaching, right. then there's no Christianity. If, if, he, if, if he only walks with me and talks with me, you know, along life's narrow way, if he only meets with me in the cool of the garden and that's all that ever matters— then you're not really, as you suggest, talking about Christianity at all anymore, are you? Well, there's a movement called the Jesus Seminar. Yeah. And what they do is try to find out which sayings in the New Testament Jesus actually pronounced. And they've reduced it down to one or two sentences. (laughs) And what they do is they bifurcate the Jesus of faith from the Jesus of history. And basically what they're saying is it doesn't matter if Jesus ever even existed as long as he lives in your heart which seems very silly to me. But it's an, it's an extreme form of pietism. I mean, it, isn't it the case that in the history of theology, the, the parents and grandparents of the great liberals were all pietists? And they were orthodox people. And oftentimes, and this is important, the pietists have been orthodox themselves. But what they haven't been willing to do is insist that everyone else be orthodox. Well, if you think about training when you're young, what Calvin did in, in Geneva, he wrote a catechism. And when the children grew up, they were taught the catechism. Yeah. And a lot of people our age got, and I, I actually found my catechism notes when I was cleaning up my mother's basin, oh. basement. There's some pretty good theology in that stuff. <laughs> I was 13 years old. Yeah. I felt like I was in a catacombs. Sure. Cleaning the basement. Oh, they're my, they're my uh, catechism notes. But there's good theology in there. But our kids don't go through that material. No. So they don't really know basic theology because there's no venue for them to learn it. Yeah, which is tragic, because that's one of the things the church is meant to do. If anyone's interested, there is an essay at wscal.edu slash Clark, and you can search there for an essay on why we uh, memorize the catechism. And what I did in that essay was to try to apply Dorothy Sayers' essay on the Lost Tools of Learning, where she distinguishes three stages of learning, parrot, pert, and poet, and I tried to apply that to the the, uh, catechism of children. And 
we have done it in our own congregation and in our own family where we've had kids memorize the catechism at a very early age. And, and uh, it is amazing. You're, what you're saying is exactly right. You know, we tried to do what they did in the 16th century, and it's, it's really remarkable what kids can memorize at a very early age and how much of that they retain and how valuable that is for shaping the way they look at the world and how they analyze things and understand themselves and God and the rest sure. of the world. I, I have my scripture memory. I used to memorize chapters yeah. of the Bible when I was a teenager. I remember every chapter I memorized verbatim it's to this there. day. It's amazing. It stays with you your whole life. In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character, Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, J. Gresham Machen the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where, for 30 years, we've been fulfilling his vision of training men for ministry and preparing them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. So we were talking about Reformed Orthodoxy and and what we mean by that. So we're describing uh, a uh, a new setting for Protestantism, where I think we would agree the substance of the Reformation was continued, but the, it took a different and more technical form in the late 16th century and into the 17th century, and uh, so that would include uh, some actually pretty famous people that. Uh, some people might not think of of as scholastics. William Ames is a fairly famous Puritan. William Perkins, who was his teacher, is a famous uh, Puritan uh, writer uh, and was a, a scholastic or an academic, a teacher of theology as well as a pastor. John Owen uh, was a scholastic. Uh, Zachary Ursinus in the late 16th century was a scholastic. So there are a lot of fairly well-known writers who were actually in their professional lives, you know, not just pastors, but also teachers in schools. You know what's interesting? Um, I believe that Jacob Arminius was a scholastic. Oh, absolutely. If you look at his writings, he, if you define scholasticism as a method of instruction, yes. he uses the same method that Beza did. Yeah. It's just that his content is different exactly. on certain points of doctrine. So, yeah, we're talking about a method of instruction here. And actually, in some ways, I think a variety of methods that could be arguably called scholastic. For example, in the Middle Ages, if you look at Lombard sentences, uh, I think that form of instruction can be described as discursive. In other words, he writes in paragraphs. But if you look at Thomas Aquinas, you know, he has a question, he has objections, he has an initial answer, and then he has a response to objections. And and that's a, a form of scholasticism. So it takes at least a couple of different forms. And I think in the Reformation, you see both forms of instruction, particularly, you know, in the earlier, in, in the Reformation proper, in that, say, 50-year window, it's mostly discursive, but after that, as you say, when the instruction begins to move more formally into the academy, it takes increasingly the, the same form that Thomas used. But there are other writers who continue to write in, say, paragraphs in the discursive form. So sure. it takes a variety of forms. Yeah, it's interesting because if, if you read, and still people are influenced by the older account of scholasticism, where to say that someone is a scholastic means to say that they are essentially a rationalist. How, how did people come to that conclusion? 
probably hit around the time, early 20th century, with the development of neo-Orthodox theology, where they reacted against the forms of theology, the strictness of it, of their youth. And that prejudice, I think, carried on into the 20th century. And Briggs did that as well, too. If you look at Briggs' account of scholasticism, he says that uh, you had, you know, sort of good biblical theology in the Reformation, and then in the post-Reformation writers, you had the triumph of and, and the return to Aristotle, he says, as the principle of theology, which is his way of accusing them of of, um, of rationalism, of replacing human right. Scripture with human reason. Of course, uh, Aristotle wasn't a believer, <laughs> couldn't have been a believer, but he d- did have a, uh, a method of using what he called syllogism, yeah. which is logical deduction. Yeah. And that's useful in theology. Well, it's useful in everyday life. I mean, right? I mean, everybody operates on syllogisms. We don't. We just don't express them formally anymore, but... But I don't think you can navigate a traffic stop without using a syllogism. Correct. We're just not aware that we're doing it anymore. But we used to teach this stuff formally. You and I both have seen literature where writers have said, you know, if some uh, syllogism, and this is a syllogism, by the way, syllogisms are rationalistic. X uses a syllogism. Ergo, X is a rationalist. Right. Uh, Also part of this debate had to do with the doctrine of predestination and— what they say about the post-Reformation people is that they made predestination that what they call their central dogma, yeah. and everything revolves around predestination. And, and that's just simply not true. If you just read their writings, not everything revolves around it. It was probably uh, the most controversial doctrine and leads right into the Calvinist-Arminian controversy in the early 17th century. But... Uh, they didn't invent it. No. Calvin taught it. Augustine taught it. Well, Thomas Aquinas would be shocked to to find out that John Calvin invented the doctrine of predestination. Absolutely, because Aquinas has a has a vigorous doctrine, not only of predestination but also of reprobation, which, right? Which might might surprise some people. So you have these great famous writers in the 16th and 17th century. You've got Beza and uh, Perkins and Ames and Owen and all and all of these people with whom at least some of our listeners may be familiar. Uh, but by the early 18th century, the story begins to shift. What what happened? Uh, things seem to be going theologically along pretty well through the 17th century. It's increasingly sophisticated. They're they're working out these difficult problems. They're trying to be faithful to Scripture. They're dealing with some very difficult challenges. Right? You have a, a renewed Roman Catholicism. You have the Arminian problem. You have uh, the question of, of Amiro. And you have the problem of uh, early Unitarianism in the Socinian movement. So you've got some serious challenges that they're facing, and they seem to be handling those challenges reasonably well. But by the early 18th century, in a sense, it seems like the wheels came off. What happened? Well, it's the beginnings of the Enlightenment, where reason actually judges revelation. And um, it starts with a guy named Jean-Alphonse Turretin whose father, Francis Turton, was one of the most famous of the 17th century scholastics. The younger Turton was trained at the Academy of Saumur, which is uh, southwest of Paris. And uh, he was trained by Amiro um, in the thought that um, of what was called hypothetical universalism, in which 
Christ died for the whole world, John 3.16, but it's only effective for the elect. And that starts the downward track. And what uh, the younger Tertini does is to reject any controversial doctrine. Hmm. And he, he talks about fundamental articles, the things that are necessary for salvation. And what he tries to do is to reduce the doctrines that you have to believe to be distinctively Christian. And ultimately, if you take everything out of that circle, everyone's a believer. Hmm. The minute you add the existence of God in there, uh, you're excluding people. He wanted to be more inclusive rather than exclusive because he's rejecting the theological controversies of his father. So it's really a problem of minimalism and a problem of of definition. And it seems to me to be the case that uh, our age isn't really all that much different from the age of Francis Turretin's son, Jean Alphonse. We live in an age of minimalism and inclusivism. What actually gets worse, um, Turretin's protege, a guy named Jacob Vernet, was a contemporary of Voltaire. And if you remember the writings of Voltaire, his biggest point was in favor of religious toleration, an idea which basically didn't exist in the 16th century. And what Vernet does is he tosses more doctrines out of the circle than his mentor had, Mm. including the Trinity, (laughs) including the existence of hell. So now you're not talking about reform distinctives. Now you're talking about doctrines that are confessed by all Christians in all times and and in all places. So basic Apostles' Creed-level Christianity is now being attacked by one of the successors of Francis Turretin. So this shift took place very quickly. Yeah, within two generations. But if you look at our own society, just just take a look at the uh, some of the great revivalists of the previous generation, they talked about hell all the time, and people were afraid. And some people came to faith because they were afraid of what would happen to them after they died. And sometimes you can go to the same evangelist, they don't mention that anymore. They're talking about the benefits, and, and I think that reflects uh, our society, which is a very inclusivistic society uh, in the postmodern age where doctrines are relative. Well, I mean, we can see this in our own time. If you look, just look at the state of neo-evangelicalism in, say, 1960. If you look at, uh, as I I did when I was in university, you sit down and read the old issues of Christianity today. You're looking at a a pretty serious magazine. You have people writing from Europe about what's happening, people writing in the early 60s. I think Burkhauer was writing reports about Vatican II. Carl Henry is editing the thing. You have a pretty intellectually, theologically, and spiritually robust publication, and it represents what seems to be the mainstream of American evangelicalism. Well, today, what's the mainstream of American evangelicalism? And it's a, it's a completely different animal, so that from you know the early 60s, 40 years later or so, or a little more than 40 years later, if you look at the state of American evangelicalism, it, look, it looks to me like almost an entirely different animal. Carl Henry looks like a, a dinosaur, a relic, I mean, relative to what's happening in evangelicalism. Yeah, you're right. Um, but they have to sell magazines. And I think the content of that magazine reflects the culture. I think if it was too heavy in terms of its theological content, nobody would buy it. And, and where have we been since the 60s? I mean, the 60s, the sexual revolution, uh, the Vietnam War protests— uh, rock and roll, 
I mean, uh, women's movement, that changed the whole nature of American society. And it raised a lot of different issues that the Church had never faced before. And now the evangelical Church looks arguably more like the culture than it did in, uh, say, in the early 60s. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that there were many ways in which the evangelical Church looked a lot like the prevailing culture. Right. But That's not always a bad thing, though, because uh, we have to reach people for the Lord. And the culture is basically the water that we swim in. And so Christianity has changed as culture changes. It's always been like that. But with what? I mean, with what are we reaching people? If, if, as you say, I think rightly, what evangelical churches are offering people is self-improvement, well, we're reaching them, but, but it's, I think we would agree that self-improvement's not the gospel. No, so y- you have to do both, yeah. and it's very hard to do both. I mean, first of all, self-improvement is inherently Pelagian, it seems to me. We, don't we want to say something like, we believe in sanctification by grace— which flows out of the gospel, and the gospel is a story of what God has done for sinners in Christ. But So you were going to say— Well, how do we come be more, more like Christ? How do we yeah. do that, practically? Yeah. Um, read the Bible. Might yeah. be a good place to start. Sure. Uh, meditate on Scripture. Um, engage in some of the spiritual disciplines through the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. God uses those things to help us be more like Christ. But if we're not reading the Bible, which, after all— And if we're not hearing it from the pulpit— yeah, we need. I, I'm a strong advocate of exegetical preaching. Yeah. Uh, preach through the Bible. Uh, people are hungry for Bible doctrine. I really believe they are. And I, I think if the pastors would elevate the the level, I think people would come up with them. They're afraid. I really do. Don't you think a lot of pastors are afraid to do that because they're afraid in the way that, let's say, that Christianity today might be afraid to elevate the level for fear that people won't come with them. Right. And, and in which case, you know, now we're back to what is the nature of faith? Is to trust in his word and then flowing out of that, do what he says. Let's go back where we started, and that is the, the question of the doctrine of Scripture. When you started your study of Reformed Orthodoxy, and particularly uh, the life and career of Jean-Alphonse Turretini, son of Francis Turretin, it was with an interest in Reformed Orthodoxy. Where are we now, since you started in the midst of the battle for the Bible, where are we now on the doctrine of Scripture? Well, that's a good question. You don't hear it talked about much anymore, do you? No. I've, I've had people tell me, well, the, the, the debate has moved on, and that you know we really shouldn't be talking about that. And I came to faith in the mid-'70s in the midst of that battle, so, and I was trained very acutely here at Westminster Seminary, California, to believe in the inerrancy and, and infallibility of Scripture. And so that's always been a really important part of my theological furniture. So I always find it jarring when people say, well, the debate's moved on. And I think, well, ever since the Enlightenment, how can the debate have moved on? Well, you have to think, what what do you mean by inerrancy? The Bible is true in everything that it affirms, period. That's inerrancy. That's how you define it. And uh, it's not talked about today. But I think people assume it. I think uh, when a good preacher preaches through the Bible— I I think people generally accept the authority of Scripture. They might not even know what inerrancy means. I think most evangelicals don't even know what the word means, but that's all it means. But now that's at the lay level. At the theological and academic level, it's a little harder to get people today to affirm inerrancy. Well, there's some difficult passages, and uh, some scholars will go back and try to reconcile apparent discrepancies in Scripture. There's a famous book by Gleason Archer, Mm -hmm. who's a... Grew up teaching at Fuller Seminary, later taught at Trinity. It's called the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. Difficulties. It's yeah. a pretty interesting read. Oh, yeah. 
because, uh, you know, people take a tax and the Bible can't be true. And he's able to reconcile a, a lot of things that uh, people assume are faulty in Scripture. These issues aren't new at all. I mean, these issues, as you know, actually existed in the 17th century. Francis Turton published a—well, it wasn't just Turton, it was also— Heidegger. Heidegger published a a strong statement, some people might even say too strong, about the inerrancy of Scripture. So they were at least conscious of of this problem and already facing it in the 17th century. What what do you think we can learn about dealing with the inerrancy problem from— from those guys, both positively and negatively. Well, well, Turton's systematic theology has actually been published in yeah, English. Yeah, which you uh, can get in the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu/bookstore. There the you go. Elenctics, there you go. Uh, uh, Francis Turton, the in, the uh, Institutes of Elenctic Theology. It's only about twenty five hundred pages. Yeah, only. <laughs> so, but, but if you're interested in theology and if you have a little patience. You will be well rewarded by spending a little time with uh, Francis Turretin. Absolutely. In Turretin, what do you see uh, relative to Scripture? Well, he, he uh, has a very long section on issues like canonicity, inspiration. Uh, but you have to understand, he's not dealing—the the major issue he's, not, he's dealing with is not inerrancy of Scripture. He discusses it, but that's not his major objective. He, he's really, really uh, re- talking about the authority of the Bible— that the Bible is the authority in everything we think, say, and do. Isn't that really the bottom line here, that inerrancy isn't just a shibboleth? It's really about, ultimately, the authority of Scripture, that right. if we lose that, we lose the source of special revelation of God, of Christ, of the Trinity, and we lose the Christian faith. So this isn't just some airy, theological, academic discussion. This is about whether the Bible is God's Word— whether we can trust it, whether when the minister preaches from it, we can believe what he says, because at the end of the day, the minister's message is only as credible as the Bible is true. So uh, these are these are pretty important. Yeah, pretty fundamental doctrines, I would say. And, and uh, since the Bible is our source of knowledge about God, it really is, that's the book we start with. That was the great cry of the Reformation, going back to the sources, going actually back to the Bible and, sure. and find out what it says. I get the sense sometimes talking to some evangelical scholars that some of them are a little bit embarrassed about the Bible. I mean, they believe it, but they're a little worried about how people are going to think of them. And I, I think back to Francis Turton, and didn't he face that same problem too? I mean, weren't there people already suggesting, come on, Francis, you, you, you can't really— think of the Bible the way that you, you do. That's not the most reasonable way of thinking. Well, he wasn't the most popular person of his generation. Yeah. And uh, when he died, I found a letter at the archives at the, at the University of Geneva that one pastor's writing to another saying, thank God he's dead. I thought he would never die. <laughs> yeah, what's interesting is we don't know who that guy is, but we do know who Francis Turretin was. Right, right. So he, he may have been a little prickly, and he may not have been the most popular guy uh, during his own lifetime, but he said stuff that was worth reading, and we're still thinking about him. Absolutely. Well, Marty, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule, and we're grateful that you're here with us, and I know the students are looking forward to hearing from you tomorrow, and uh, I am as well. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Office Hours. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Clark. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. Thanks to Young Me for Graphics and Adam Klaus for technical assistance. You can hear all the previous episodes of Office Hours online at wscal.edu slash officehours. Click on Office Hours under 
Westminster Audio. Don't miss a single episode. Subscribe to Office Hours in iTunes or at wscal.edu slash officehours. Write us at officehours at wscal.edu. Call us at 760-278-1725. Leave a message and we may use it in a future broadcast. For more information about Office Hours or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online or call us at 888-480-8474. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.